At the moment that I'm preparing this, I'm standing in a place that is uh, overlooking the St. Mary's River. I'm looking at the island of Nebish, which is a part of the state of Michigan. We have many family that are from Michigan. Many of our family actually reside in Michigan. Michigan is emerging as a one of the areas within the United States of America is being referred to as a hot spot for the COVID-19 virus. This is developing and is apparently growing, and we are in our probably third week of assembling in our homes on Sunday morning due to the request of our provincial government that we not assemble in groups during this period of time. I'm in agreement with this in principle, and I realize that it cannot go forever. My um, thoughts on this are abundant, and I have considered basically presenting a podcast on the subject, but have been not permitted to do that at this point in time. It seems very clear to me that the most important thing that I can do at this very critical moment in time is to open the pages of Scripture, and so I will continue with the topic of, by wisdom the world knew not God. This will be the third part of this subject. Very aware of the moment. And I believe that the most important thing that can be done is to introduce the Word of God, the written Word of God, into this moment. I'll remind you from last Sunday morning I presented Scripture that Jesus talks about the promise that He would be with them. He said, I'm with you. I will be with you. And Mark records that as they went out and, pre- and presented the gospel message after the ascension of Messiah Jesus, that he confirmed the word that they presented with signs following, indicating that he would be with them, that he was with them. Also last Sunday morning I mentioned that the promises, the great promise, especially the promise of the Father, was given to the new man, not the old man, and that there was a need to prepare before the upper room experience. And during the period of 50 days following Passover, the first 40 Jesus being with his disciples, then the next 10 was a time of preparation for them so that that on that morning of that great day when they entered the upper room, they were in the one place, they were in accord, one accord, in one place. Their hearts were joined together. They were operating as new men in Christ Jesus, new people in Christ Jesus. And that the purpose of Pentecost is to equip the new man to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So I will begin in Acts chapter 2 and reread a portion that I've read before. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And in the fulfilling of the day of Pentecost, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly a sound came out of heaven as borne along by a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And tongues of fire appeared to them being distributed, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And dwelling at Jerusalem there were Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. But this sound occurring... The multitude came together and were confounded because they each heard them speaking in his own dialect. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, 
Are not these who speak all Galileans? And how do we each hear in our own dialect in which we were born? And then Luke, as he is recording, goes through the list of nations and peoples that are represented at Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. The Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem for feasts. They were required to attend for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. The list of nations that Luke records will include uh, nations from the then-known world, all of the vast area of the then-known world had representatives in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and the each were born, in many cases, in those nations, Jews, but being born in those nations, and hearing the wonderful works of God being given by the apostles, giving, given being given by all of those believers from the upper room, and they were amazed. In verse 11, they said, We hear them speaking the great things of God in our own languages. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? Now, there were two groups of people among all those who were drawn by the sound of the sound that resembled that of a rushing mighty wind. And some of these individuals were amazed and they were amazed and said, all these are Galileans and we can hear them speaking in our language in which we were born. And then there were others in verse 13 that says, but others mocking said, these men are full of sweet wine or full of new wine. It's entirely likely that those who were amazed would largely be those who had come from all of those different nations to Jerusalem for the feast and those who were mockers were likely Judeans. For example, the Judeans, for the vast majority of them, would not have understood the languages, the majority of the languages being spoken. The vast majority of the languages being spoken would be the languages of the then known world and the various dialects unique to that, those different parts of the uh, of the world at that time. The ones who were mockers likely tended to be Judeans because they had grown up to um, look down upon the Galileans to begin with. The Galileans spoke in an accent. The Judeans really thought that they uh, were unsophisticated, uneducated people. And so they had a tendency to mock them at the best of times. And so among the people were those who were amazed and those who were mockers. Now what I'd ask you to do this morning is to is to go back, if you could in your thinking, go back to that period of time and join in uh, with the throng of people at that place at that time. It's assumed that the year is A.D. 33. Again, it's at the Feast of Pentecost. Now I'll reference a couple of um, several Historians, ancient historians, I'll begin with Oregon of Alexandria. He lived uh, in the time frame of 182 to 254 A.D. in the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. And he wrote in a book entitled Against Celsus. And he is uh, writing and he refers to a historian who lived uh, before him, whose name was Phlegon. And this is what he said. He referred to a description 
by Phlegon of an eclipse accompanied by earthquakes during the reign of Tiberius. But there was, and this is what Phlegon said, was, uh, had written, the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, that is at noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Thales wrote a history of the eastern Mediterranean world uh, since the Trajan War, and Thales wrote in his regional history in about AD 52, which was only about 20 years after this moment in time. Thales was a extra-biblical historian of that era. Now, his original writings have not, uh, we don't have them, they've been lost, and but he's quoted by Julius Africanus, who was a renowned 3rd century historian, and this is what Africanus says. Thales, in the third book of his histories, explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonable as it seems to me. Apparently, Thales attempted to ascribe a naturalistic explanation to the darkness during the crucifixion. The point is that all of these very ancient historians referred to a phenomenon at a period of time during the reign of Tiberius where there was a great eclipse of the sun that last they referred to as eclipse of the sun that lasted for three hours. Now again, Phlegon was a Greek historian. He wrote an extensive chronology around A.D. 137. And he said in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that is A.D. 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, that is noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Now what's very interesting is what Tertullian writes concerning all of these events. And Tertullian is a famous second century apologist. He was, early in his life, he was a skeptic and then converted was converted to Christianity, and he is writing to a group of skeptics, and he refers to this great event. And this is what he wrote. At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun, and the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. And so Tertullian is writing in the second century and says that in the annals or archives of the Roman Empire that these very cosmic events had been recorded and were still uh, existing in their own historical records. With those references in mind, I come to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27 and verse 45. It says, and from the sixth hour there was darkness talking, and he's, he's writing to us about the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. And from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It's the three hours. Now what many of these rather ancient historians refer to as a solar eclipse is not thought of as a solar eclipse by men like Tertullian and many others. A solar eclipse uh, lasting for eight minutes is a long solar eclipse. Most of them last a shorter time than eight minutes. 
This lasted for three hours. Not only was it dark, but it was so dark that the stars appeared. Matthew, continuing, writes, And crying again with a loud voice, Jesus released his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and rocks were sheared. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep arose. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. But the centurion and those guarding Jesus, seeing the earthquake and the things that took place, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this one was Son of God. And let me summarize. And so on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is about to address all of this assembly that have been brought together by the sound, and they hear the believers from the upper room and they're speaking the wonderful things of God in languages that these and dialects that these men were born to understand from various parts of the empire. And so within the two months previous to this day, within the two months previous to this day, and all of these events would be associated with the very public crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And so all of those people would know these things. They would know his public ministry. They would know the, the miracles of his ministry, the unprecedented, miraculous works that had never been seen before, which he had done. They would be familiar with this. They would be familiar with his crucifixion, which was very public, and the extreme loss of blood during the mock trial and uh, during the procession to the crucifixion site on Golgotha and on the cross. All this was done for the people to see and the Romans encouraged the people to see it. So it was very, very, very public. They were aware and remembered because, again, all of these things had happened in the last two months. They remembered the darkness that was upon the earth from noon until 3 p.m., the time of the death of Jesus. And it was extreme darkness. They knew that the veil of the temple had been torn from top to bottom. They remembered that there was a great earthquake, widespread earthquake. And during the widespread earthquake, that rocks were fractured. And when rocks are fractured, then you have a dust storm, dust everywhere. They knew all this. They knew that there had been widespread fires lit and torches lit to be able to see. And so they would need light during those three hours. And so to accomplish that, to provide light, fires would be set. Many, many fires would be set. And torches for anyone wanting to go from one place to another during those three hours. That evening when the full moon arose, it looked like blood because of all the dust in the sky. The moon arose and it appeared to be like blood. They also knew that and had heard the accounts of saints having risen from the dead, from their graves, and having entered the city of Jerusalem and appeared to many. They had heard of this. Some of them undoubtedly had been familiar with this personally. These saints arose following the resurrection of Jesus. And they entered into the city and appeared to many. 
And it is believed by many Bible commentators that these saints continued on the earth and that they left at the same moment in time as the ascension of Jesus. So all of these things had just occurred. And so now they're very fresh in the mind of all of these people. And I want to read now Peter, what Peter uh, says in his message. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, Men, Jews, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And listen very carefully to these words. And in light of all the things that we have just described, listen to these things. And it shall be in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit upon men servants and maidservants. And they shall prophesy. That's what they had just heard. And I will give wonders in the heaven above. All those things they had just seen about two months ago. I will give wonders in the heaven above and miracles on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. All these things they had seen. All these things they had seen. The sun shall be turned into darkness. This they had seen. And the moon into blood. This they had also seen. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord. So all of these things that Joel has written about are going to occur and these signs in the heavens above and on the earth below will occur before that great and glorious day of the Lord. And what Peter is saying is that the great and glorious day of the Lord is today and you are seeing it now. This is the beginning of it now. And it shall be that everyone who, who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and this is, this is just miraculous now, what I'm going to read to you. This is wonderful, considering all of these people assembled. And hearing this, they were stabbed or pierced in the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, men, brothers. They're calling them brothers now. Men, brothers. No longer they're looking down on the Galileans. It's men, brothers. What shall we do? The idea is, what shall we do to be saved? What shall we do? Now this piercing of the word to the heart is a um, consequence of Pentecost. This is one of the things that Pentecost is intended to do. And Pentecost, the gift of Pentecost is given to the new man so that the new man can present the word of God in a way that it penetrates into the heart of the hearer. The reason that they were so moved by the words of Peter and his message was because the message pierced and only the Holy Spirit is able to apply the word so that it pierces to the joining of spirit and soul, the dividing of spirit and soul, revealing the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And then Peter said to them, 
Number one, he said, repent. You must repent. You must change your mind. You must change your thinking. You must change the attitude that you've had over all these many years and months. You must change your thinking. You must change your actions. You must realize that the attitude and the positions that you have taken were wrong and you must take a different one. And so you must repent. And, he said, number two, and be baptized, every one of you, each of you, every one of you individually, must be baptized. It means to immerse. You must be immersed, each of you. And you must be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is what must happen. I want to go into this a little bit more deeply. This is not an external. This is not something that is simply external. There is an external to it, but it is not primarily external. What he is saying is that, and and this also could be translated as, you must be baptized, every one of you, unto the name of Jesus Christ. Unto, or on the basis of the name of Jesus Christ which really means on the basis of who he is, on the basis of all that he has done. You must come to uh, embrace who he is entirely. Embrace that he is God. Embrace that he is man. Embrace that he is your redeemer and your only redeemer. That nothing you can do will save yourself in the eyes of God. You must receive that he is your high priest the only one who can offer his blood for the remission of sins. And you must believe that he is your Lord, that he is your master. And so you must receive, this is who he is, and you must receive unto yourself on the basis of who he is. Now, it's not enough that you just do that. It's not sufficient that you just do that quietly within yourself right now, he says to them. You must do that spiritually. You must do that in your mind. You must do that in your heart. But you must testify to that. And by testifying to that, this is what you must do. You must go to one of the areas where there is a provision made for ceremonial cleansing. And there are many of those in Jerusalem. And you must surrender yourself entirely, submit yourself entirely to someone who will immerse you into that water. Entirely. Because you must surrender yourself every whit, every bit, all of yourself. And in the sense in which you are immersed in water, you are entirely immersed. You must be entirely immersed into who Jesus Christ really is and your acceptance of who he really is. And that's what you must do. So you must repent and you must be baptized, every one of you, unto the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is the way in which your sins are forgiven you. Now that your sins are forgiven you, now the Holy Spirit will make of you a new man, a new creation in Christ Jesus. You become a new man in Christ Jesus. And as you become this new man in Christ Jesus, this is what Peter said, the third part, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm struck by these words. This, this is imperative. This is unconditional. This is absolute. 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that can prevent you from receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. But these must be satisfied. You must repent. You must be entirely immersed, every one of you, unto the name of the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must give evidence to that entire submission to him by being immersed in water. And then Peter said, For the promise is to you and to your children. Not just us. But this promise is to you. And to your children. And to all those afar off. You can't even see them. They're so far off. But to those also. And then he said, As many as the Lord our God shall call. And there's a sermon there. There's a message there. To as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now I've asked you to go back to AD 33. Now I'm going to invite you to come back home. Come back to now. Come back to this moment in time. Wherever you are, this moment of time. Because this moment in time now is the afar off from AD 33. Right now we're here. It's here and now. And I'm going to close this portion this morning and I'm going to I'm going to close with a reference to COVID-19 and the present threat that we are facing. And I want to say that the Holy Spirit is also known and referred to as the Spirit of Truth. I want to say that it's essential that we understand what's going on now. It's essential that we respond, react appropriately to it. This idea of assembling and we're not assembling in our churches and we should assemble in our churches and the scripture says to forsake the, not this manner of assembling yourselves together as the manner of such is and so on. So much more as you see the day approaching. So we could take all those passages of scripture and we could say, well, we're disobeying the Lord by not. And this is the kind of thing that's happening now is that there's so many different voices, so many different ways of thinking. I like this word cacophony. I've always referred to that as the hen house. And if you know, if you've ever visited a hen house, you'll know what the word cacophony means. It's just noise coming from everywhere. It's a din. And we have this beginning, and this is going to continue, this, um, this divergence of thinking, this unsettled kind of position that people are in is going to continue and it's going to become it's going to become exacerbated over the next few months and next few few weeks. And but we have to have a way of thinking and the thinking must be anointed thinking. And the spirit of truth that comes in baptismal measure, one of the things that he does is he provides us with the way in which we should think about things. We need that. When we don't think properly then we don't know how to act properly. So we need to know how to think properly about the things that, are, that, that we are facing so that we might react or act appropriately. Some people are demanding that the uh, churches be opened. There are some areas, and I'm not going to speak about any specific area. You all know probably what I'm talking about, where I'm talking about these things. Some pastors, spiritual leaders, are refusing to close their doors. They're inviting everybody to come in. They are 
quite possibly exposing their people to the spread of this virus and quite probably and possibly likely spreading it by assembling all these people together. In our province, we've been asked not to do that. Not just asked, but it's been required of us not to do that. And I respect it, and I believe it's the right thing. For now, let me say, for now, it's the right thing. But what I'd like to close with, rather than to go into some of my own thinking on this issue of COVID-19, what I would like to do is, and as I was preparing my thoughts, I realized when I came to this moment, I didn't have any way of closing this. I don't know how to close this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to think about this message. I'm going to ask you to think about the manifestation of Pentecost in the early New Testament church. I'm going to ask you to realize with me that this was not intended. It was not canceled. It was not intended to cease. That this promise continues for us. This promise is for us. I'm going to ask you to think with me this morning of what the manifestation of this promise would be like and what, how that would look in terms of how we would conduct ourselves and how we might be used of the Lord in this moment in time, this very critical moment, how we might be used of the Lord in this moment of time so that we would actually see Him walking among us if you have listened to all three of these on By Wisdom the World Knew Not God, you'll realize that my motivation at the very beginning was watching a debate and, and so uh, desiring that Jesus would walk onto the platform to make everything clear and set everybody straight. And now as I come to a close now, I'm realizing and seeing very clearly that the provision has been made for Jesus to walk among us right now and manifest himself through those who have had the upper room experience. Those who are walking in their new identity in Christ Jesus. That he's made provision to walk among us and manifest himself in the same way as he manifested himself among his disciples and the original occupants of the upper room. What would that look like? What would that look like where you live? What would that look like for you? What is, is, is there a, a barrier here for you, for me, for us? Is there a hindrance? Are we able to lay our hands upon the sick and have them recover? Are we able to do that? That's the provision of Pentecost. When I hear ministers of the gospel speaking loudly about their right and demanding their right to assemble and gather all their people together, what rises up within me is this. If you can lay your hands on the sick and have them recover, then you can call them all together and have them assemble. But if you can put them at risk and you can't minister if they become victim to this present moment, 
then you better be quiet and you better follow the, the leading and the advice of the civil authorities around that are asking you to cooperate with this with them in this moment. But my conviction is that there's uh, it's possible to do both. My conviction is that it's possible to respect civil authority, but also to draw close to the Lord to actually walk in this provision and to be enabled according to his leading and guidance to lay our hands on the sick that they may recover. The purpose of that, of course, is to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. This is the best closing that I can that I can provide. And I don't feel as if it's a closing. I feel as, as if it's a work in progress. And my prayer as we close is, Lord, prepare us and equip us to walk wisely, intelligently, but ought to be led by your spirit of truth and to be equipped in this way for this moment in time. Because not to be equipped for this moment in time is a great tragedy for the church. We must be equipped for this moment in time. And that means more than just staying at home and trying to protect ourselves from a virus that is moving around. That's not enough. We'll cooperate with the civil authorities. But, oh, Lord, equip us to take your word, not just in our own words, but in the provision that you would give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.